You are listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. Now in its 20th year, the Lumen Christi Institute enriches academic communities at the University of Chicago and across the nation with the wisdom of the Catholic intellectual and spiritual tradition. Today's interview is with Rachel Fulton Brown, Associate Professor of History at the University of Chicago. We sat down with Professor Fulton Brown at Gavin House to discuss her intellectual and spiritual journey and her teaching and scholarship. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Mark Franzen. I'm the program coordinator at the Lumen Christie Institute. Our guest today is Rachel Fulton Brown. Rachel Fulton Brown is Associate Professor of History, Fundamentals, and the College at the University of Chicago. She holds a PhD from Columbia University and is the author and editor of numerous books and articles of medieval European intellectual, cultural, and religious history, including From Judgment to Passion, Devotion to Christ and the Virgin Mary, 800 to 1200, and most recently, Mary and the Art of Prayer, The Hours of the Virgin and Medieval Christian Life and Thought from Columbia University Press, 2017. Her teaching has been recognized at the University of Chicago with the Provost Teaching Award in 2006 and the Llewellyn John and Harriet Manchester Quantrell Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching in 2007. So you're a, you're a fairly recent convert to Catholicism. Can you tell us a bit about your religious upbringing and the trajectory that led you to Rome? Well, the short answer is Mary. The long answer is I grew up Presbyterian, and when I was 13 or so and we had confirmation, one of the things that I found very frustrating about our confirmation class was the utter absence of the discussion of the Eucharist. And if you understand, in, pre- in the Presbyterian church, we only have communion once once a month, typically, and it's but it's it's reserved for the the adults or those who've gone through confirmation, and it seemed to me that there was a great mystery in it. Even though, of course, in the Presbyterian Church, all you get well, all we got when I was growing up were little squares of Wonder Bread and the little cup, the cups of grape juice. <laughs> um, but it did seem to me that there should have been, you know, there was something more behind mm-hmm. this this devotion or this this communion, this practice, and. It was only when I was in college and taking courses in the history of medieval Christianity that I came across an explanation that I I found intriguing and and worth pursuing. I was doing courses with uh, teacher Sharon Farmer, and she introduced me to the work of Carolyn Walker Bynum, who eventually became my dissertation advisor. It was in Sharon's class that I first read one of Caroline's most important essays on the Eucharistic devotion of medieval women. And Caroline in that essay showed very vividly how medieval mystical women nuns saw the Eucharist as as food primarily and as a way of incorporating the humanity of Christ in their own self-understanding. Caroline also did an essay, And Women, His Humanity, that in the imagery that she saw, there was a sort of a, a more masculine focus on the divinity and a more feminine focus on the humanity. Well, in the same course that Sharon gave us Caroline's essay. We also did a a section on the devotion to the Virgin Mary. And the most interesting thing about that for me was that Sharon said she couldn't find anything to assign us. She assigned us Marina Warner's Alone of All Her Sex, which, if any of you have read it, is a fairly dismissive account of what the significance of the devotion to Mary is, that Warner grew up Catholic herself and felt that 
the devotion to Mary had been presented to her in a very oppressive way, that Mary as an image was bad for women. I didn't buy this. Even though I grew up in the Presbyterian Church and really had no engagement with the Marian dimension of Christianity, Warner's description of, of Mary seemed to me just wrong, and I've spent the last 30 years trying to figure out why. The first thing I worked on as a graduate student were commentaries on the Song of Songs, in which Christ is cast as the bridegroom of the, the text, and Mary as the bride, which should give you an indication that's already maybe, you know, what do you say, not your grandparents' Christianity? No, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> not, not the Christianity that you thought you were getting into, because some of it's quite erotic. Uh, I have a blog that some of you may be familiar with, um, Fencing Bear at Prayer, and I talk about one of these, one of these commentaries on the Song of Songs in a post that I did about a year ago called on gender fluidity. I'm less sympathetic to the worries about gender fluidity than some people are, because well, gee, if if you're if you're used to reading commentaries on the Song of Songs mm-hmm. in which Christ is described as the bridegroom and the meditating monk is described as the soul, and there's images of the you know cru- the crucified Christ absorbing the monk into himself. This is Rupert of Deutz. Um, <laughs> you are less surprised by some of the modern discussions of gender, but you should also be wary because, of course, the Song of Songs imagery is also about the great, the gr- much greater mystery, which is that of the the divine and the human, of the way in which. God became incarnate through Mary and what kind of relationship that creates with her, with Christ and Mary as his, his mother, that she is flesh of his flesh, bone of his bones, and therefore feels what he feels, suffers with him as he suffers, and is therefore assumed bodily into heaven because of that intimate relationship in, in their flesh. Um, so that was that was the work that I did um, in my dissertation and in my first book that you mentioned, um, From Judgment to Passion. I talk about the way in which these Song of Songs commentaries and the liturgical frame in which they're they're cast give us, I think, the ground for what scholars have called this devotion to Christ and his humanity that becomes very prominent in the later Middle Ages. But again, I was like, okay, that that that's different from obviously what Marina Warner said in terms of Mary is an image of woman. She isn't. I mean, she's 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 woman in the sense that she's a creature of God and she's she's the mother of of God. But she's not feminine in quite the way the 19th and 20th century worried about her as being feminine as this sort of antithesis to the masculine divine. And therefore, in that in that sense, Caroline and I were looking at the same mystery from a different perspective. She was more worried about the image of woman, and I was more worried about the image of, of, of the, in fact, the human, the, the creature, and, and what she shows about the divine through her. The book that I just finished, Mary in the Art of Prayer, takes this mystery to this, this next dimension, which is not just Mary in the Song of Songs, but Mary in the Psalms. And in this, this tradition, the, the medieval exegetical tradition, the Psalms are understood to be always and fully about Christ. And it's, you could say, if you want to understand medieval Christianity, reading, reading the Gospels is, is obviously important, but it's even more important that you read the Psalms, mm-hmm. because it's the Psalms that in fact carry, as I would say now, the, the, the mythology that medieval Christians understand. They're the Psalms that carry the great image of, of God that the monks are, are literally incorporating into themselves by singing them constantly, but also inhabiting as the image of, of God that they, they are worshiping. I say there, the Psalms are understood as always about Christ. It's because the name Lord in the Psalms is understood as Christ. It's, you know, Jesus Christ is Lord, is Jesus Christ is 
Yahweh. And the, the, the mystery there is that Yahweh in Hebrew is not typically pronounced. It's too sacred a name to pronounce. And so when reading the Psalms in Hebrew, you say Adonai instead. That's translated as Kyrios into the Septuagint, which is the text of the Psalms that the earliest Christians used, which is translated into Dominus in the Latin, which is Lord. And so when you say Jesus Christ is Lord, you mean he's the one named in the Psalms as, as Dominus. Well, in, in the Marian tradition and in the Office of the Virgin, which is the focus of the book, Mary is the frame for being able to recite those Psalms. She's the one in whom God becomes present to the world, visible to the world. And the core of the book, Mary and the Art of Prayer, is an exegesis of the Office of the Virgin in which I show the way in which these antiphones, the introductory chants, the psalms literally in the sense of the words <laughs> provide a frame for the psalms praising god right and and so you if you have the the first antiphone and psalm of, of the marian office blessed are you among women and blesses the fruit of your womb the first psalm is psalm 8 which is the psalm about god as creator that he's what is man that you are mindful of him what is you know that, that you've elevated him above the angels all the creatures of the of the earth praise you right so the antiphone as the marian frame is blessed are you among women blesses the fruit of your womb the fruit of her, her womb is the creator okay so i'm still not to, to rome yet am i <laughs> so i've been studying mary i've been studying the scriptural tradition i've been studying the way in which medieval christians intellectually and affectively engaged with mary through the liturgy and through their exegesis of scripture and then I became friends with Milo Yiannopoulos. And he's Catholic, and I've been talking with him about our, our mutual faith and, and about how better to express you know, the understanding of God as creator that I'm, I'm trying to, to show through my scholarly work. And I've been invited to St. Louis in November 2016, when I just finished the, the, the footnotes for the book, to give a talk about the, to give a plenary lecture about the, my work. And I was actually born in St. Louis. My parents were in medical school at, the, at Washington University there. And one of my graduate student hosts, when I was um, on the visit, even took me around to see the, the apartment building where I was a baby, which was wonderful. It's like, I've come home, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm telling Milo about this and saying, you know, joking with him because I think he should get a dog. And, and I said, oh, you should get a dog. If you get a dog, I'll convert. And he says, I'm, I grew up with dogs. I'm going to get a dog. And I'm, and I'm like, well... <laughs> I guess I'm doing it. And on the plane home, I wrote to the uh, head of religious instruction at St. Thomas the Apostle Parish, where I've been, been received, and said, Jennifer, I'm, I'm coming in. <laughs> uh, and so I say it was Mary, and I mean it, that it was, as growing up Presbyterian, growing up in a tradition that was very heavily intellectual, very heavily scripture-focused, clearly guided me as proper Protestant into this appreciation of the way in which Mary is expressed through scripture. But... It you know I couldn't get there I couldn't cross the Tiber as it were until I I solved that problem I think. In addition to being a decorated teacher and medieval historian, you're also an avid fencer and have been for some time. Is there a relationship between your scholarship and your fencing? Of course, <laughs> everything everything fits together if you work on Mary. I actually started fencing the same year my first book came out, and I in fact purchased my first foil and mask with the money that I got from the prize <laughs> um, for my first book, which was, a, was, which was a nice gift, I think, that, that that first book gave me. I was intrigued by presentations that I'd seen at 
our International Medieval Congress on monks' use of military imagery to describe their prayer practice. And because, as you can tell, I'm a very practical scholar in the sense that I want to find out how to get inside things, I thought, well, I'll learn defense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These were scholarly practitioners of medieval swordsmanship that were talking about the ways in which medieval swordmasters describe not just the moves and the sort of physical discipline that they needed in order to become fencers, but also the mental discipline. And there's this wonderful image of the fencing master in, it's a manuscript at the Getty in um, Los Angeles by Fiore de Liberi, who's a great Italian fencing master, of the fencing master and the virtues that he needed, symbolized by four animals. So he has the lynx above his head, which is for the, the vision, the clarity of vision that you need, the, the lion and the tiger on either side of him for the swiftness and courage that you need, and the elephant at his feet for his stability. And I heard a, a talk at Kalamazoo, I think 2003, right, on, on the, the way in which the, the fencer is you know, inhabiting these virtues, and I said, I need to understand how to do that. Fencing Bear at Prayer is my blog actually started as about five years after I'd been in the fencing as a way of talking about the spiritual lessons that I learned through my practice as a fencer. And it was also the same time I was starting the, the actual writing of my new book, The Marrying the Art of Prayer. And I, I wanted to sort of take what I'd learned as a fencer and as a scholar and transform it into a kind of, I mean, it's, I love self-help books, right? I'm all about self-help books. And, and the greatest self-help book of all is the Psalms. <laughs> and and you know, the, as self-examination is your training in virtue. And I think sort of the idea to do the blog was another of these, these nudges of the spirit to say, you need to start finding out a way to make this speakable outside of your academic practice. And so my, my fencing and my writing and my devotion, obviously, I'll end up in the same package, and you, you can ask me about how I deal with that. My teaching, too, we can go there. That I'm also convinced that my, my experience as a fencer over the last several years is what gave me the, the, the wherewithal and the stability to engage in the kind of public conversation that I've been in. And, and I have a post that I recommend if you all are curious about taking it out into the, to the public sphere called How to Be a Happy Warrior, which shows the, the kind of discipline that I think you need in order to to have difficult conversations about faith, about education, about our cultural life. And much of that I learned from my engagement on the Strip with training my emotions to stay in a highly anxious situation when someone's coming after you. So Hmm. yes, it it definitely influences both my teaching and my, my intellectual work. So in the courses you've taught at the University of Chicago, you've introduced students to medieval spiritual practices, forms of devotion to the Virgin Mary, and the medieval theological imagination. How have your students reacted to these things, and what's been the most surprising ways in which they've reacted? I start with the text. I start with the primary text, and my goal in my teaching is to, to help the students get inside the perspective of the authors, and we do a lot of work from that perspective of say you know putting on the perspective of why the author was writing at the time what what seems to be motivating his or her concern about this issue what what kinds of things not not taking the context and using that to explain the text but taking the text and having its moment arise mm-hmm. out of it so that that tends to be one of the primary modes of instruction i use the other is particularly in the, from the perspective of the imagination to invite students to make their own works of art and in the Marian course, in particular, one of the options for their final project was to make some 
work of devotion. It could be a, a, a play, it could be a painting, it could be a story, it could be a poem. I Indeed, and that's what I got. I got one was a wonderful activity play that one of the students wrote for her own church, and, hmm. and then I think they put it on and performed it. Another was, I just get chills thinking about this, the most exquisite folio from a book of hours and she went and the student did this one went and researched everything about the paints found a model to use clearly worked very very hard and when when she first showed me a photograph of it i'm like wait where did you get that Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was the most perfect forgery i'd seen it was so wonderful i have a painting in my office that one of the students did from that course which is a image of mary as the container in which Christ as the crucified is is shown, right? So Mary is this gold-jeweled form in which the crucifix is there with, I think she has a sun disc for the Father and a, and a dove for the, the Holy Spirit, and showing the way in which Mary makes visible the whole Trinity. So they have gifted me with their joy. It's it's hmm. been It's been absolutely astonishing how, given the opportunity to work out of their imagination within this intellectual frame, Mm -hmm. they are able to create magnificent works of art. And the the course you teach on Tolkien, I imagine, has similar sorts of activities, which are in a slightly different mode in terms of not as focused on prayer and devotion necessarily, but but focus on similar sort of exercises of imagination. Exactly. The theme for the Tolkien course is subcreation, and the the inspiration is from his poem Mythopoeia, which he wrote for C.S. Lewis, saying we we make still in the image in which we are made, and that this the subcreation is this refracted light mm-hmm. that we participate in, and so the, the 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 major frame of the the Tolkien course is to understand what Tolkien meant by that sub that act of subcreation. The final project, everybody loves the final project for the Tolkien course, um, that, 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 and they're given two options, which is important. That One, they can write a scholarly paper, because it's important to recognize that scholarship is an act of creation and imagination as well, and that Tolkien, in his own scholarship, wrote some of the most brilliant essays we have in medieval studies, one his, his essay on Beowulf and his essay on fairy stories, so that, that the scholarly element is also a part of this creativity. I, I, I make sure that they understand that that's important. Most of them, however, choose to do the other one, which <laughs> is to accept Tolkien's invitation that he gave in his letter to Martin Waldman when he's trying to pitch his books. And the letter failed <laughs> in that he did not convince Waldman to publish his books, but it's the best praise we have of what Tolkien thought he was up to in his, in his mythological writing, and he he explains that he wanted to create a a mythology for England, that that he was, as an Anglo-Saxon scholar, um, distressed that it seemed that the whole sort of pre-Christian mythology had been lost to the present, and that he, as a philologist, felt that he found traces of it in things like the ints that are mentioned in -hmm. in either the the ruin or in, in Beowulf, and that by way of his philological practice as a historian, in effect, could could trace back into the mists of time the reality of stories that were behind that, that what he wanted to do in sketching this out through his own stories was create that place where then people could fill in the rest of it, right? Mm-hmm. That they could, they could bring their own creativity and um, artistic talents to make music, to make 
images to make movies, clear, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, costumes and such. And, you know, the great growth of medieval fantasy literature, of, you know, Peter Jackson's movies and the effort they put into making it realistic. It's like, how do you talk about realistic mm-hmm. fantasy? Right. Is proof of, of the sort of power of that invitation to create into this this imagination. But it's very highly theologically focused because as far as Tolkien understood stood it, the greatest fairy story of all was the gospel. And that the magnificence of the incarnation was this the mystery that the artist, the maker, had entered into his own creation. And there's a, a place in one of Tolkien's later works where he has an elf and a human woman talking about what human beings think about their truth and and the woman says well you know there be, there's this story out there and Tolkien's very he's sort of trying to hedge it right because he doesn't want to make a parody of Christianity but he wants to sort of make it real saying you know we have this this claim that the somehow the the maker is going to enter into our into his own work and they say how could that be how could he do it without shattering the very thing that he had made and recognize that this is, brings it back to my Marian mysteries, right? That's what the incarnation is about. That's what the, mm-hmm. the moment of the Annunciation is. The great mystery of the Annunciation is the artist entered into his own work through a creature, which is why it matters that she's not a goddess. She's his creature right. without shattering his work. And I use that passage in my book because and so my teaching intersects with my, my scholarship in that in my book to say, this is what you're trying to get your head around as a Christian. It, it's trying to understand what it means to say the creator in whose image and likeness we are made, who invites us as his creatures to create, to subcreate in his image and likeness, entered into his own artwork and became flesh. If I can convey that, yeah. <laughs> I, I am blessed. To me, that's what people are responding to in Tolkien's work, even if they don't appreciate mm-hmm. it, they don't right, recognize right. it. It's this invitation to participate in art. Well, it seems like there's such a strong connection and just the way that you describe the incarnation to think of it more as in in terms of this artistic image as opposed to a very implausible historical event it seems like it's a much more inviting way to persuade someone who's either unfamiliar with the doctrine of the incarnation or or sort of predisposed to to not believe it to invite them to it and that not that not that it's disconnected from the historical reality but that it's strengthened by the image of, or the thinking about it as as an act of a creator in the context of a creation, and, and it actually makes sense when yes. you think about it that way. I'm I'm glad to uh. hear you say it, and that's the this is if I can if I can read what Tolkien says about this. This is from his own fairy stories, and this is I use this as an epigraph in the book. This is my teaching on Tolkien and my my desire to show people what it's like to be within this story is is what's so I, I start with the famous passage from the lord of the rings where sam and frodo are talking about what it's like to be inside the story and you know that they realize that they're in the story still so i i, I push back a bit on you about the historical right it's like mm-hmm. one of the the great mysteries for tolkien is how do we find ourselves inside this story mm-hmm. how do you recognize that um as, as sam talks about you know the light that frodo has in in the star glass that Gladriel gave him is in fact the same light that's in the Silmaril, that's in the crown of Arendel, that's the star that they can see mm-hmm. in, in, in the sky and that they're in the same story as in the Silmarillion when Baron and Luthien get the star from the Iron Crown in Thangorodrum, which is why Tolkien wanted the whole both the Silmarillion stories and the Lord of the Rings published together and, mm-hmm. and that he, in that he did not persuade Waldman, right? That as far as he was concerned, you needed the Silmarillion in order to appreciate how the hobbits were in this 
sort of cosmic level uh, mythology as well. But Tolkien means us to recognize ourselves in that story too. The Gospels contain a fairy story or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical in their perfect self-contained significance. And among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe. But this story has entered history and the primary world. The desire and aspiration of sub-creation has been raised to the fulfillment of creation. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true, and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. For the art of it has the supremely convincing tone of primary art, that is, of creation. This story is supreme, and it is true. Art has been verified. God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused. And then you turn the page. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee mm -hmm. called Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel being come in said unto her, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Who having heard was troubled at his saying and thought with herself what manner of salutation this should be. Well, I think that's as good a place as any to. <laughs> so the next that, time uh, you say the Ave Maria, <laughs> think what story you're in. Hmm. Well, Professor Rachel Fulton Brown, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thank you for having me. Rachel Fulton Brown's most recent book is Mary and the Art of Prayer The Hours of the Virgin in Medieval Christian Life and Thought, Columbia University Press, 2017. You can read her blog at fencingbearatprayer.blogspot.com. You can find her video channel on YouTube at the Three Kratos Symposium. And you can find her academic homepage at the University of Chicago's website for syllabi and a list of her other publications. Thank you for listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. To access more resources, please visit our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The music for this episode, Sequence for St. Hilarion, is recorded by the Lumen Christi Institute Artists-in-Residence, Scola Antiqua of Chicago, on their CD, West Meets East, Sacred Music from the Torino Codex.